Well, good morning, Elam. How is our community of everyday missionaries today? Are you refreshing? Are you being refreshed in the Lord? It has been a beautiful, eventful day already, and so exciting. Um, today's message is going to be a little unusual. So if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy, that letter. I'm titling today's message, A Call to Theological Generosity, because I'm trying to hopefully contextualize something that we as a congregation will be voting on uh, in early December, namely our affirmation of the EFCA's 2019 change to our movement's statement of faith. Now, this might be news to many of you. First, it may be news to you that we're part of a larger uh, Christian movement known as the Evangelical Free Churches of America. Uh, Fun fact, we are not simply a member of the EFCA. Our congregation is the first EFCA congregation ever. Yeah. So in 1884, there were two original church plants. One was in Tacoma, Washington, which is us, even though we've migrated over the years. And the other one was in Boone, Iowa. And it, these two church plants launched this particular work of God's Spirit. You see, we're the product of Swedish and Norwegian missionaries who were passionate to reach their lost Scandinavian brethren that were scattered across the United States uh, for Jesus. And their faith and their evangelistic fervor had been fanned into flame as they sat under the powerful preaching and teaching of the American revivalist D.L. Moody. So yes, on January 12th, we will be celebrating our 140th anniversary as both a church and a movement. So 140 looks good on you guys. Not a day over 100. Not a day over 100. So the second part that may be news to you is that bit about our change to our movement's statement of faith. If you missed it, it makes sense. Back in 2019, a portion of us were not here yet. And the rest of you were just beginning a season of pastoral transition, which would be followed shortly thereafter by a global pandemic. So a lot slipped through the gaps for many of us in those years. But on June 19th, 2019, the EFCA conference voted to update the statement of faith from our previous 2008 version. And exactly one alteration was made. Our article of belief, which pertains to Christ's return, it now reads this. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy. And as our blessed hope, it motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. You see, back in 2008, it had said the personal, bodily, and premillennial return of Christ. So just that single word was changed, moving from Premillennial to glorious was our sole adjustment, and it's that revision that we will be voting on on December 3rd, along with next year's budget and the nominations for treasurer and elder. So there's more to say on this matter, and the elders and I have created for you all a quite thorough document that's available in the back. It was emailed to you. It's also on these two round tables here kind of going through, walking through all the whys and the wherefores behind this proposal. 
Uh, But before we get lost in the weeds, I want to let Scripture frame this whole endeavor. So if you have your Bible, we'll be in 2 Timothy and kind of all over it. Uh, So this New Testament epistle is a favorite of mine. If you peek your head into my office, you'll see a poster on the wall from the Bible Project that depicts in kind of visual form the message of this letter. And it's a piece of correspondence between the Apostle Paul and a young mixed-race pastor named Timothy who he's mentoring. So Paul's been instrumental in leading Timothy to the Lord, and now he seeks to encourage and equip him as he shepherds God's church in the city of Ephesus. And if you read this letter, which you can read it in a sitting, it's short, you'll pick up on a theme. Paul, this is one of Paul's repeated exhortations. He says this in chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He goes on in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. And then you go to chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And again, he picks up on this theme. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. These are touchstones for me as a pastor. Guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you and preach the word, the full word. All of it is breathed out by God. All of it is profitable for us living as the people of Jesus in and for this world. And remember this when I preach next year through Leviticus. It too is the voice of God and useful. You can't tell if I'm joking or not. I'm going to leave you in suspense. Yet Paul's fervent admonition to guard the good deposit of biblical gospel truth is held in tension with a word of warning that is also repeated over and over. So this is uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it leads people into more and more 
ungodliness. And then in 23 of that same chapter, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. To hold these two things in tension, we need some process of theological triage to help us discern what truth we must cling to at all costs and what takes or positions when pressed are needlessly divisive to Christian unity and disruptive to gospel work. It's about learning to prioritize, to major in the majors and minor in the minors. So allow me to illustrate. There is a viral clip going around the internet of a pastor who is railing from the stage against folks in his congregation who will bring Starbucks coffee onto campus. Not only does he decry it as communist coffee, but he takes particular offense at the mermaid image on the cup. He links it to a demonic figure from ancient Mesopotamian theology, mythology known as Lilith. And he berates his people and all of those watching online for drinking an evil brew that has been produced by a witch's coven. And I saw that video and I instantly sent it on to my buddy Matt, who is a former missionary and a beautiful human being, uh, to troll him because he now... Uh, is off the mission field and working for Starbucks in upper management. <laughs> now, I too have strong opinions about Starbucks, but they mostly have to do with the burnt taste of their coffee and their CEO, their former CEO's betrayal of our state when he sold the Seattle Supersonics, our one NBA franchise to Oklahoma City. That might deserve a lifelong boycott. Yet, I can also say that that flamboyant pastor is not technically wrong. I know my ancient Near Eastern history, and yes, the earliest mermaids were uh, evil and destructive creatures. They are also, to my youngest daughter's great dismay, not real. So in our efforts, now hear me out. So in our efforts to resist our own hearts bent towards idolatry, which is real, should we picket showings of the live-action Little Mermaid? Should we demand that every little girl who walks through our doors remove their mermaid paraphernalia? Or is this the wrong hill to die on? Just a foolish, ignorant controversy that does no good and breeds quarrels. You see, there's a beautiful aphorism that's passed down to us by a German reformer. It comes from the time of the Thirty Years' War. This is the 1600s in Europe. It was a violent, decades-long bloodletting between Europe's Protestant and Catholic believers. And in a little tract on Christian unity, he writes this when Christians are killing each other over their beliefs. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. 
and in all things charity. This is what I mean by a call to theological generosity. It's unity around an unwavering commitment to gospel essentials. And that which is not vital to the gospel, dialogue and respect in our differences. And in all of our interactions, a heavy dose of grace, kindness, and love. But is there such a thing as an essential and a non-essential when it comes to our faith and practice? And if there is, how do we know what is what? The Apostle Paul seems to make such a distinction. In Corinthians, he writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried in accordance with the Scripture, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared. Yet to the Romans... Paul will pen these words. He says, Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. So according to Paul, there's matters of first importance worth preserving with care and exacting precision, and there are disputable matters that are not worth quarreling over, where a diversity of opinions are accepted, if not welcomed. There may even be shades of distinction in between those two poles. You see, theologians usually articulate this as a four-level framework. There are matters of first importance, second importance, third importance, and then disputable matters. matters. Uh, If you want a helpful resource on this, uh, Gavin Ortland's, and you'll already hear how much he is thinking has influenced my language, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, A Case for Theological Triage. Uh, He's not an EFCA guy, but he was the keynote speaker at our um, denominational theology conference this last year. And he has a wise and what I feel is a needed word for the church at this moment. And here's how he delineates things. He says, there's first, there's matters of first importance. These are also known as primary or first rank doctrines and practices. Think of doctrines like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, teachings and practices that are essential to the gospel, the reality of the resurrection, the justification by faith, Christ's literal return, core practices like forgiveness and loving one's enemies. You see, these are matters that are part and parcel of the gospel, and those who refuse to affirm and embrace them are not family with us in the household of God. We're not saying they're terrible individuals, but if you reject the matters of first importance, you're not counted among the followers of Jesus. And so our proper response when it comes to these primary issues is courage and conviction, guarding the good deposit entrusted to us. Well, now matters of second importance, secondary, second-rank issues. Ortland says it this way. He says, these are urgent to the health and practice of a church, but not essential to the gospel itself. You see, secondary issues are complex. They are 
significant enough that they frequently cause Christians to separate at the level of a local church or denomination or ministry, but disagreement on these matters does not put a Christian brother or sister outside the fold or beyond the pale. Into this category of secondary doctrines, Ortland puts examples like our debates over baptism or spiritual gifts or women in ministry. So it's the settled conviction of our church that we only baptize those who can make a conscious profession of faith. In some ways, this shapes how we live this Christian life together as a community. It grants distinctiveness to our congregation. But we don't claim that the baby sprinkling Presbyterians are godless heretics destined for the pit. And you can see how a divisive person would argue that there are no secondary issues, but all is primary and absolutely essential. That, therefore, if you don't believe as I do on every single point, I'm not sure I can call you a brother. Envisioning these sorts of people, Paul writes this to Titus, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. If you need another piece of biblical evidence for this, Paul has what feels like a frustrated, offhanded remark in his first letter to Corinth. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. You see, folks in Corinth, they're splintering over which Christian leader baptized them, claiming to be disciples of Peter or Paul or James, depending on who it was that dunked them under the water. Now, Jesus does commission us to baptize people. It's part of what it means to make disciples. But Paul is implying that baptism is secondary to the preaching of the gospel. Don't let differences here be a point of division in gospel community. The proper responses, therefore, when it comes to these second-rank issues are wisdom and balance. So let's move on. Matters of third importance. These are matters that are important to Christian theology and Christian living, but are not worth separating or dividing over. Into this category, Ortland puts, deep breath, uh, our understanding of the days of creation and the age of the earth, how we understand the timing of Christ's return and the nature of his millennial kingdom, and how we parse the push and pull of predestination and free will that is kind of behind our debates about Calvinism and Arminianism. So, and in terms of practice, I might throw into there exactly how, not whether, but how we labor on behalf of the poor in Christ's name. Whether we advocate for a more just economic system, a more robust social safety net, a less oppressive tax burden, or whether we pour our energies into direct community-level charity. These are differences in strategy, not values. Therefore, when it comes to these matters of third importance, our proper response is to cultivate unity in our diversity. 
With humility, we dialogue about differences in ways that are just rich with grace. We acknowledge that well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians can land in different places. I appreciate Ortland's insight here. He says this, Fighting over tertiary, third-ranked issues is unhelpful. But fighting over tertiary issues while simultaneously neglecting primary issues is even worse. Or as Paul puts it to the Galatians, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another within the church, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Finally, let's touch on disputable matters. Fourth-ranked issues, what uh, is sometimes called things indifferent. Disputable matters, sometimes that Greek word is also translated as opinions, may be practically relevant or intellectually stimulating, but are unimportant to our gospel witness and our ministry collaboration. They also tend to be things that we are deeply passionate and fascinated with. Thus, they're things on which we have strong, well-researched opinions. For example, this one's one of mine. Was Jesus born in a stable or within a private home? Was the mysterious fourth figure in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego an angel or a pre-incarnate Christ meeting them in their suffering? Should we sing hymns or contemporary worship songs? Should our small groups be mixed or gender-specific? These matters, in reality, tend to be the reasons why most people leave their local church in a huff. But our proper response with things indifferent ought to be to exercise circumspection and restraint. To be circumspect is to be prudent to be cautious, to be careful, to consider all circumstances and possible consequences. To be restrained is to exercise self-control over thoughts and emotions so that in all things we might be charitable to one another. I'll again quote Paul in Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person, I feel like Paul's getting a little jab in, the weak person only eats vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And then he goes on in verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to, the, thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. This is not going wishy-washy on truth. This is practicing theological generosity on lower-ranked matters. Theological triage allows us to identify what hills are worth dying on. 
in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. We're called to preach the word and guard the good deposit entrusted to us. This is absolutely essential to our calling. We've seen the wreckage when this gets thrown out. We're also equally asked to be one as Jesus and the Father are one, demonstrating to a watching world who Jesus is by how we love one another. This is why we need to practice theological generosity on these lower-ranked issues. And I tell you all this, long preamble, because I want to equip you to grow in discernment. I could just give you the answers. Hey, trust me, vote this way, drink this coffee, etc., etc. But I don't want you to be a disciple of me. I want you to be a disciple of Jesus. Our goal is to train you to cultivate your own convictions so that you not only know what you have been taught, but that you actually have come to believe what you have been taught. So you may ask, how do we go about sorting things into these various buckets? How do you determine what is essential, a good deposit to be guarded, and what is a topic that's worth wrestling with but not quarreling about? And there, uh, the EFCA has something called Evangelical Convictions, which is this book-length walkthrough of our statement of faith. And in the back, they provide us with uh, six diagnostic questions that I think are very helpful. So I want to preview for them. I want to share them with you today. So, as you're trying to decide essential, non-essential, question one, to what extent does this doctrine or practice Reveal the person and nature of God. Second thing to ask, how directly is this doctrine or practice connected to the gospel and the storyline of the whole Bible? To what extent, question three, does Scripture unambiguously affirm this doctrine or practice? Number four, how prominent is this doctrine or practice in Scripture? Number five, how widespread is the consensus on this doctrine or practice in the church, both the past and the present? And finally, how relevant is this doctrine or practice to us today? Viewed through this lens, I would argue that the literal return of Christ His personal, bodily, glorious return is absolutely essential to the gospel. Jesus is coming back as a person, not just as a spiritual force or an idea, not as a fresh form of government or a new way of living. The Lord himself will descend from heaven, it says in Thessalonians. And Jesus that ascended at the end of his ministry will return the same way we saw him go. And he will come bodily, with flesh on him, with a glorified but tangible resurrected body. Our future is not about fluffy, duffy spiritual existence. It's real hope for real meat. It's newness and unquenchable life forged out of the stuff of creation. To quote evangelical convictions, they say this, we will see him and we will become like him in a bodily existence fit 
for the new heaven and the new earth. Finally, his return will be glorious. Remember what Paul wrote to Titus, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where once he came in humility, a baby in a manger, he will return in majesty and power as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the judge of the living and the dead, to finally and definitively make all things new, to banish evil, to heal creation's wounds, to set the world to rights, and to demolish death forever. You may have thought that moving from premillennial to glorious, we were shifting from a stronger word to a weaker word. Glorious is actually the word most used in the New Testament to describe Christ's return. It is the glory to be revealed where Jesus will come in glory to sit on his glorious throne. That is a hill worth dying on. Because it is God's promise that Jesus will return to vindicate himself and his people before a watching world. What about the conviction that his return will be premillennial? That Jesus will return before he establishes a literal thousand year intermediate kingdom on the earth that exists between our present age and the eternal state. This is something upon which I have a firm and settled conviction. But it's not a reason to break fellowship with a fellow believer over. Why? Well, if we go through those six questions, biblically it's less clear in Scripture than so many other issues that are central to our faith and our basic Christian identity. The Millennial Kingdom is explicitly taught in only one passage, Revelation 20, 1-6, And it is a notoriously difficult passage to interpret, coming in probably the most difficult book in the New Testament, written in a genre, apocalyptic literature, that most of us are unfamiliar with. That doesn't mean don't read it. It just means it's complex. Practically, also, the doctrine of the millennium makes significantly less practical difference on the Christian life and church health than do other kind of second-rank doctrines baptism, spiritual gifts, etc. A third reason not to divide over millennial views concerns the church's historical stance on this issue. Specifically, kind of our default American evangelical position, which is called for you theology nerds, dispensational premillennialism, is somewhat eccentric when seen against the backdrop of the global and the historical church. It's a minority position. doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's fairly novel. It hasn't really come into its own until about the 19th century. So if you draw the line at premillennial and say Christians are on one side and heretics are on the other, you'd have to kick out of the church such proponents of biblical truth as St. Augustine, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, B.B. Warfield, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul. This may be an issue, and again, I have a settled conviction that is premillennial, but this may be an issue where it is a mark of godliness to admit that no one view triumphantly explains all of the texts. But I will end with this. 
Just because something is non-essential doesn't mean it is not important. And the thought that Jesus is going to establish a literal kingdom on our literal earth that is good news for actual nations, I find really encouraging and important. Christ's good news is tangible. It's actual good news for this actual world. Not just spiritual fluffy duffiness. We're going to go off floating on a cloud. He's going to make all things new here. Kind of scriptures teaching about a millennial kingdom. It also reminds us that not only is Jesus Savior of the world, but he is the rightful King of Israel. The one who sits on David's throne, who has the key of David. Right? It is this, in the millennial kingdom, where all of the promises that God made to the historic people of Israel get fulfilled And as we discover that good news for God's people was good news and is good news for the nations as well. Micah 4, 1 through 4 is a beautiful passage. It shall come to pass in the latter days, looking at the reign of the Messiah, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all the mountains. And it will be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. It's a beautiful expectation, real hope for the real world. The fulfillment of God's single story that began with Israel that we were grafted into that will change not only the world, but all eternity. Finally, the teaching of the millennial kingdom uh, is this stark reminder, because if you don't know your revelation very well, there's a thousand year reign of Christ, and at the end, humanity still rebels (laughs) against him. It's this reminder that the brokenness and rebellion that has settled deep into the human heart is insidious. And that seeing is not necessarily believing. Right? If Jesus is literally making the world new, establishing justice right in front of you, if there's kindness and grace that governs human society, and yet folks will still refuse to willingly submit to God their Creator, and trust his leadership. They would rather demand to be God themselves to their very destruction. So, I'm not saying this is not an important part of our convictions and our belief. I'm saying that this is something that we can wrestle with together in community with grace and truth while we guard the good deposit, our blessed hope that Jesus is coming back So as you guys wrestle with this for the next couple weeks, 
I just wanted to lay that table out. I didn't want to just pass it on and say, hey, forget about this. Do the work, read through the document, pray about it. This is something we've been asked by the nomination to consider affirming. It's something that the elders recommended back in 2020, but things have been going on and we're just getting to it now. So take care to really think through this stuff. I hope that this drives home that this isn't a, this kind of how do we do this stuff in the body of Christ? There is a ton of ink in Scripture spilled on this. How we love one another well while clinging to the truth. So let me pray for us as the worship team comes up to close us. Dear God, we, with humility, sit before you as your people, as your students, as your apprentices. Train us in your way. God, every generation you call to steward gospel truth. It is the gift we give undefiled to the next generation of who you are and how you save us. As we walk in this calling to be your witnesses and evangelists in our generation, give us wisdom. Teach us how to love one another and cling to truth and preach the word to the glory of your name. Make us one as you are one. We love you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.